Okay, we're going to be looking at um, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to pick up where I left off the last time I taught. We were at the church, dealing with the church at Pergamum in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And the last time we came together, um, we looked at the, the first two verses. And so I just want to review that a little bit and then finish off this, this letter. In the first two verses of this uh, passage, we read, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. As I mentioned the last time, I said that one of the Satan's most devious, devious methods of rendering God's people spiritually ineffective is compromise. Compromise is always dangerous. He's done this throughout history. It's one of his most effective tools. And this is what he did with Israel, and that's what he does with the church today. Um, and we see that um, with, with Pergamum. That was the problem. And remember, as I said a couple weeks ago when I taught, that Pergamum was a city that was very difficult to live as a Christian. Uh, they were, uh, it was the capital city of uh, the Roman province of Asia. In fact, they were considered the greatest city in Asia. And they were known for its tremendous idolatry. It was the center of many pagan cults. It thrived there. And I mentioned there were four main ones. There's, there were many, but there were four main uh, idols that they worshipped, the pagan cults. One was to Zeus. The other was to Athena, Dionysius, and Asclepius. And also they had the imperial cult where they worshipped Caesar. In fact, if you didn't bow to Caesar, you'd get yourself into trouble. And so all of this made it very difficult for Christians to live in Pergamum. And that's the background. Now, as we looked at verse 12, in verse 12 we saw that Jesus will come and judge. That's what he basically tells us because he describes himself as the one with the two-edged sword. And if you recall, I talked about that as well. It points to judicial authority. The two-edged sword, it combines the force of a warrior that defeats his enemies in battles, but also his authority in pronouncing judgment. And so Jesus is standing over his church as a, as a, a threatening judge because of the church's sin. Okay, They're compromised. He hates compromise. And, and so this two-edged sword shows Jesus' words are infinitely powerful. That's how he judges. That's how he disciplines. Uh, this description, two-edged sword, is intended to strike fear in our hearts. We should read this and, and just be caught, off, uh, caught by this saying, Whoa, this is serious stuff. And the sword was the symbol of Roman power. Back then, when you think of Rome, you think of the military, you think of, uh, of, of the sword. And so it, it had this thought that um, Rome had, was, was powerful. And to hear Jesus with a sharp two-edged sword in this manner basically shows the church who really was in control. Rome thinks they're in control, but Christ is the one with the two-edged sword. He's the one who is sovereign and in control more than Rome. We also looked at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, where the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so we see that the Bible is God's written standard that reveals truth and error. And I also showed you a couple of passages there later on in Revelation 19 when Jesus returns um, back to this world to bring judgment. It says he comes with a sharp two-edged sword. So he's described in the same way. And he will judge according to his word. 
Jesus doesn't need a physical, literal sword to judge. He just pronounces it and the judgment is done. And that's how he is going to come and that's how he will do it. And so he will ultimately conquer all the powers of this world and he will judge them by the sword that comes from his mouth, that sharp two-edged sword. So those who deny his authority, those who mock him, they will taste that authority and that judgment. It will be pronounced upon them. And the, the beauty of this judgment that comes from his word is it cuts away all excuses. You know, there are no but-ifs with Jesus when it comes to judgment. It, it identifies all sin. It exposes the secrets of the soul because it talks about the intentions. It pronounces a, a verdict and, and, and it issues and, uh, and enforces his judgment. And that's how he's going to return. You know, when he was here, he was gentle. But when he's coming back, he's coming back as a warrior with a sword. And he's coming back for judgment. And that's how he's described uh, with this church at Pergamum. He comes as one who has a sharp two-edged sword. He's coming to judge. And he will not fail to accomplish. And we talked about that the last time. Then in verse 13, we saw that we are to remain loyal to Jesus Christ, even under intense pressure. Because he commends them. He makes known uh, his, his circumstance. He knows what's going on. And that's what's beautiful about this. To the believers immersed in a deeply satanic atmosphere of idolatry, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. To those struggling by grace to remain faithful when everybody around them is unfaithful, but yet it seems like they're just gaining all kinds of pleasure. Jesus says, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. And to a church that has to struggle and fight through these times, Jesus says, I know where you dwell. So that means to you and to me and wherever we dwell, wherever we work, whatever we do, Jesus Christ tells us, I know where you dwell. He has that infinite personal knowledge. He knows where we are and what we're going through. And so he understands the circumstances surrounding this church at Pergamum. And he understands how difficult it is for them living in that culture, the way it's all set up against Christian thinking. And our culture is becoming that way. It's, it's, it's almost there. It's, it's amazing. And so the circumstances you live in may not be conducive to faithful living, maybe the job, maybe the neighborhood. But please understand, Jesus Christ knows every detail of that. And we talked about that the, the last time. He knows where you dwell. He knows every detail about it. So you can rejoice in that. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus Christ knows every detail of what you deal with every day in life. He has sovereignly and strategically placed you where you are because he has a purpose for you. And he knows that and he's going to carry you through and he's going to protect you. So rejoice in that, as difficult as it may be. And this is why, as I said a couple weeks ago when I talked this, that, that uh, every city is Christ's city. Because he knows where you dwell. He's put you where you are for a purpose and for a reason. And he will fulfill his purposes. And we also saw that Jesus desires courageous faith. He says, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he commends them for holding fast his name. Though they are surrounded with intense evil and danger as a Christian, they continually held fast to his name. And he also commends them for not denying their faith, even in the days of Antipas, who was a martyr, who died for his faith. And he was just one of many who would die for their faith. 
but they didn't deny his name. And so Antipas was a martyr for Christ. He was the first in a, in a series of martyrs. And Jesus gives him the name Faithful Witness. See, when you stand uh, for, for Christ, and yes, in this persecution, you are a faithful witness. That's what Jesus Christ calls him. That's what he calls us. And so we saw that Jesus' commendation is a powerful one. And when you look at this commendation in verse 13, you would think that this church in Pergamum, I mean, they're where they need to be. I mean, they are it. They're, they're doing the job that they need to do. They're remaining faithful, taking a stand. People are dying for the cause of Christ. So you think that it was a mature church, that they had it all together. The problem is, is that's not the case because compromise creeps in. As strong as the commendation is, you read the text and you see that they were in danger of severe judgment from Jesus Christ. Why? Because God hates compromise. God hates compromise. It's an affront to God because it belittles God. It basically says, yeah, God, you're who you claim to be, but you know what? This is just as good. I can get just as much pleasure with this as I can with you. In other words, instead of elevating God, we bring God down to our level when we compromise. And it belittles God. And God hates compromise. Because it basically makes the statement that, God, you're not the only one who's worthy. These other things are just as worthy. And remember what he's told us in Isaiah. I am God. I share my glory with who? No one. Yeah. And so when we compromise, what are we saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, you do. Because this is just as glorious as you. And God hates compromise. So we pick up in verse 14, and let's look at the rest of this letter to see what God thinks about compromise. Verse 14, we read, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching, uh, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against him with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So in verses 14 and 15, where he really brings out this, um, this indictment, basically we learn, do not mix. And this is important for us in our world today. Do not mix your faith with worldly philosophy, with worldly system. It's hard to do because we live in this world. But it's very easy, and I see it often in the lives of Christians where they do have this mixture of, yes, I follow Jesus Christ, but when you look at their lives, they are living like this world. And you've, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, worldly Christian. That's really an oxymoron. There's no such thing. Okay, Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a worldly Christian. Yet we hear it all the time. Basically, what is a worldly Christian? A Christian who's compromised. Right? And God hates that. And although grace is amazing, and we would definitely shut the praises of grace, it's also subject to distortion, right? Especially by those who use it to excuse loose living. Hey, I'm under grace. Right? I've heard it many times. Who are you to judge me? I'm under grace. 
The most flagrant expression of this type of justification was stated by Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Remember what he said. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And that's what people were doing. I'm under grace. And so the, if I sin, it doesn't matter. I'm forgiven. And it shows God to be even more forgiving. And it glorifies God. And if you don't think that excuse happens, it does. I've heard it. When I taught at the college, I heard it from students all the time. They would justify themselves in their compromise. And the church in Pergamum has this inconsistency. And Jesus does not tolerate it. Yes, he is a gracious God. Praise God for that. But he is not a God who is going to tolerate our compromise. And so he indicts this church for harboring these compromisers, if you will. Is that a word, compromisers? Uh, if it isn't, it is now. Anyway, he, he, he doesn't tolerate it. And the image of the sword in this context is primarily a symbol of threat to the church because they did not discipline these compromisers and they themselves started participating with the compromisers. And that's dangerous. And they mentioned two here, the Nicolaitan and Balaam heresy. And these two heresies were closely linked. They were two different groups in the church, but they had similar beliefs, similar systems of living. And they compromised with the culture in order to accommodate themselves. You know, if it felt good, hey, just do it. And so they both had the same philosophy. And so they sought to persuade the Christians that there's nothing wrong when you conform to this kind of living. It's no big deal. And it was all done under the pretense of Christian liberty. The first group that's mentioned was Balaam. Do you remember who Balaam was? Back in the book of Numbers, right? Uh, this compromise that this group uh, brought about was uh, to comp it went back to the compromise that Balaam had with Israel. It, Balaam was a, a, a prophet, right? And you could read about it back in Numbers chapter 25 as well as chapter 31. But Israel, um, Israel had uh, compromised and intermarried with the Moabites. And the reason why is because Balak was uh, the ruler of the Moabites, and he saw that Israel was coming around, and so he hired Balaam, the prophet, to come and pronounce judgment. And every time Balaam went to pronounce judgment, what would happen? He pronounced blessing. And Balak said, what are you doing? You're blessing them. He says, I can't help it. This is what God wants me to do. And so what did Balaam do? He says, look, I can't pronounce judgment, but here's what you can do. Get them to compromise. Get them to marry your people. Get involved in the worship services and worship the gods you worship. And then they will be judged. And that's what they did. As a result, they fell away from the Lord. They intermarried with the Moabites. And in chapter 31, verse 16 of Numbers, we see that this happened through the council of Balaam. This is what he did. And so uh, as, as the uh, king, Balak, uh, was concerned about this, he did exactly what he was told. And so he compromised his, uh, his calling, Balaam did. And what's interesting is um, that there were 24,000 Israelites who died as a result of that compromise. 24,000 uh, were killed. And when Israel finally did um, uh, discipline itself and repent, the plague was lifted. And so the false teachers in Pergamum were arguing that believers could have a close relationship with the pagan culture. It's okay to participate with them. Do it out of love. 
It's okay to participate in their religious system. It's not going to affect you if you believe in God and God is giving you grace. So in their social and trading pursuits, these Christians met and mingled with dozens and dozens of these citizens. And so these relationships began to spark. And they figured if we could develop a relationship with these people, then when we trade, when we do our commerce, we can make some money here and we can live. And so they began to um, uh, compromise. And they uh, begin to come up with excuses. And Baal, the Balaamites, those who were in the church, thought that it was okay and acceptable to relax their principles. Just as Balaam did with the children of Israel. It's okay to relax a little bit. God has brought you this far. He'll bring you the rest of the way. And they thought that compromise was the wisest policy. So they encouraged these Christians to join with these people in their festivals, their pagan feasts. It's okay. Enjoy their food. It doesn't matter. Don't even ask what the food is. Just participate. And as a result, they went to the point where they even got involved in their immorality because they would have immorality uh, involved in their uh, pagan festivals. That's the compromise. That's how far compromise is. It starts off small and it gets bigger and bigger. And before you know it, you're living just like this world, participating in everything that they say is okay, even though Scripture says it's wrong. That's what was happening at Pergamum. And this uh, church of Pergamum was infested also with another group of people who were given to compromise. They were known as the Nicolaitans. What Balaam was uh, to the children of Israel in the Old Testament, the Nicolaitans were to the church here in Pergamum. We saw this group when we studied the book of, or the, the letter to Ephesus, the very first letter. Uh, this, I don't remember when we did it, but it was quite a few months ago. They were antinomian. Remember what antinomian means? Against the law. Against the law, right. Okay, so if you, quote, obey God, oh, you're antinomian. And that's, uh, that's dangerous because there's a lot of people that like to throw that word around today. And so they advocated an unhealthy compromise with pagan society. So they basically told them and they insinuated that we are now free in Christ. And we would agree with that, right? We're free in Christ now, aren't we? Well, if we're free in Christ, that means we have the freedom to live as we please. This is what they were insinuating and people were buying into it. We're okay now. We're under grace. We're free in Christ. Don't put yourself under the law. And that sounds good and it's right. Don't put yourself back under the law. We would agree with that. The Bible makes that very clear. But not putting yourself under the law does not mean that you could live any way you want and feed your flesh. That's the danger. And that's what they were pushing. And so they insinuated that freedom in Christ gave them privilege to sin. What's really interesting, though, is how these two churches, Ephesus and Pergamum, had opposite responses to the Nicolaitans. Back at the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 6, they hated the works of the Nicolaitans and refused to tolerate their behavior in the church. Jesus commended them for that. So the church in Ephesus hated what the Nicolaitans taught. Here in Pergamum, they welcomed them into the church and allowed their influence to suck them in and gave them freedom to propagate their destructive ways. Amazing. And what's really interesting is when you look at Balaam and his compromise, if you read the story of Balaam, Balaam was, uh, did, did die. He was executed by a sword. And it's interesting, Jesus comes with a 
to its sword. So it's not a coincidence uh, that uh, Jesus described this way. Now what's interesting and what's, what makes this difficult is when you look at these compromises, the Nicolaitans, uh, as well as the, what everyone calls Balaamites, there's no indication anywhere that we read that they actually denied the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't see that anywhere in here. It's not like they're saying, hey, forget Jesus and do this. They were not denying the name of Jesus Christ. We don't see any evidence that they were denying the virgin birth. We don't see anything that they were denying propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't see anywhere that they were saying or they were denying the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So they weren't doing any of that. They were not denying the major doctrines. That's what makes this so dangerous. Because they're not denying that. So in many minds, it's like, they must be right. They probably have something going on here. Because they're not saying that Jesus uh, didn't die and rise, they, uh, didn't, uh, rise again. They, they're not saying that at all. And so the issue here is that they were turning the grace of God into what we call licentiousness. They're turning the, the grace of God into a license to sin. And believe me, it is running rampant in our churches today. It's unbelievable what people do today in our churches in the name of worship. Absolutely amazing what we would excuse and what we accept. Uh, it, it just, it frustrates me is what it does. It frustrates me. I, 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 as a student, I was talking to a, a young man one time, goes to a big church, uh, anyway, beyond Tampa, down there somewhere. It's a big church, five, 10,000 members. I can't remember what it is. And we were talking about it because he wants to be a pastor and I was dealing with, with pastoral students. And he was telling me about his church, and he says, yeah, it's a big church. And, um, but as far as major doctrines, they're never preached. And I said, why? He says, well, the pastor says we have too many people, and that would offend too many people, and they would leave the church. This is the pastor who, by the way, quote, has written books, goes to speak at conferences, and people listen to him. And that's his philosophy. And so the church doesn't know anything about the God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election. Why? Well, we have 10,000 people, and guaranteed there would be thousands that would be offended, and they would leave the church, and we don't want to offend them. They come here to relax and enjoy, not to be offended. Compromise. Compromise. That's from the pastor. And we're talking to this young man, and I said, what's your take on that? And he says, I deny it. I don't believe that. I said, I'm glad to hear that. Because if he was going to deny, I said, we, you, need to, you need to retake a few classes. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell him that. But the point is, is that it, it, it starts with the pastors and it works its way down. I remember in one church I was in, there was two people living together. And I didn't know this. And then I started talking to him. He told me, yeah, we've been living together. I said, okay, we need to talk about this. And so they left the church because I confronted them living immorally. There were people in the church that were angry at me because I confronted them about their sin. They said, it's none of your business what they do in private. Again, compromise. It is so prevalent in our churches everywhere. You don't have to search hard to see it. And it's very dangerous. Very dangerous. And so Jesus' point here for us is do not compromise your faith with the way of the world. And that's what was happening in the church of Pergamum. 
because of the influence of these compromises. If there are those who compromise and they're spreading their philosophy, they need to be confronted, put under discipline, or removed if they refuse to repent. What's really interesting and what I find odd here is that this church in Pergamum, the Christians here, withstood external pressures to compromise in the sense that they would be willing to uh, be executed. They'd be willing to be martyred for their stand for Jesus Christ. Yet they would allow the compromisers who are in the church to spread their compromising philosophy. Just it, It's odd to me. And this is why Jesus is against the church. These two groups of compromisers infiltrated the church, and Jesus hated their doctrines and teachings, and so should we. Anybody that compromises, anybody that causes us to drift away from God, that's a compromise. We should repent of that, stop that. And so although Jesus commends the church for holding fast and not denying the faith in Jesus, yet they had become overly tolerant of others whose immorality threatened the very life of the church. So in the Ephesian church, they were guilty of elevating truth above love, right? They forgot their first love. So they were guilty of elevating truth above love. Pergamum, they reversed it. They were elevating, quote, love and acceptance above truth. And both are wrong and both are dangerous to the church. And so they had a strong commitment to peace, and, 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 uh, but also a, a they have a wrong commitment to peace and tolerance. And, and today you have to be careful because everybody's throwing that word out, tolerance. Tolerance. We have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant. Yes, we are tolerant of certain things, but we are never, ever to be tolerant of sin. We are never, ever to be tolerant of compromise. Okay, non-sin issues. Yes, tolerance. Sin issues. Compromise. No tolerance whatsoever. whatsoever. And so, they, they have this problem of, 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 of compromise and it, this, they claim that they have this love and we do it out of love. And I remember I used to hear that all the time from students at, at the school. Well, aren't we supposed to love them? And I say, love never compromises. When you compromise, you're not showing love. Compromise is actually very dangerous. And so when you compromise and you accept it, that's actually the exact opposite of love. And so... They, this is a, it poses a serious threat to the purity of the church, and that's why Jesus is very um, uh, wants to judge them. And so, they had uh, theological convictions, and that was good. But the problem is that they were tolerating false prophets in their congregation, who taught that it was okay, it was okay to be immoral in the name of Christian freedom and liberty. It's okay to compromise because we want to be accepted, uh, accepted by, the, by society. We, and, and, and here's the greatest all, all excuses. We want to be able to be, quote, relevant with them. So we have to be like them. Why? So then we could share the gospel with them. So basically what they were saying is that we can participate in the worldly uh, festivals and feasts and participate in all of this immorality for one purpose, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Amazing. Amazing. And the things that I've heard people say about what they do at their church, and they say, yeah, and we get all these people that come in and we could share the gospel. I say, do you share the gospel? <laughs> do you when you do this? Legalism is dangerous and it belittles the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. 
Be careful of legalism. That's why we have to be tolerant. And that's why we compromise. That's what they argue. And I, I agree that, uh, and I think we would all agree that legalism is dangerous, but this is not an issue of legalism. <laughs> right? They became lax and they tolerated the presence of teaching that was erroneous, and as a result, it affected the church. And what they do is they have, or what they receive, is this warning from Jesus Christ I'm coming with a two edged sword. And I will use this sword to bring judgment for such tolerance. And as I said, I find it interesting to note that Balaam, um, he was threatened that he would be, if he didn't submit to God, that he would be executed by the, uh, by the sword. And then later he was executed. He was killed by that sword. And this is why Jesus is pictured here with the sword. He deals seriously with compromise. He is the king of glory. He shares his glory with no one. Compromise takes glory away from Jesus Christ and places it on other things. And that makes him angry. He will not tolerate compromise. And what makes me sad is how many in the church today have not learned this lesson. It just, it just infuriates me. I don't want to get caught on my hobby horse, but compromise just infuriates me, especially when it comes from pastors. Okay? It's just wrong. It's been a snare to the church throughout the ages. It was a snare to the children of Israel. It's been a snare to the church, compromise uh, over and over. In fact, throughout, when you look at the history of the church, you look at each um, historical uh, time period, you'll see that compromise was the issue again and again and again. Even with the Puritans, when you look at the Puritans, what, why did people often go against the Puritans during their day? It's because the Puritans stood against compromise. These churches... We're open to compromise. How are we going to reach these people? And the Puritans say, we don't reach these people. We preach the gospel and let Jesus Christ reach the people. And that's what made them so powerful. But yet, they were hated by, by uh, whatever you want to call them, normal church people, whatever you want to call them. They were hated. And that's the reason why. Look at Jonathan Edwards, probably one of the greatest of all pastors in America. He was kicked out of his church. Think about kicking Jonathan Edwards out of your church. Amazing. And they didn't like his preaching. It wasn't compromising enough. Oh, and by the way, it, it's even in our seminaries. I had a class. I had a class where they didn't come out and call it compromise. But they said, if you're going to reach your world, you have to pick your target group, whatever age group that is, 20, 30, 40 year olds. And then you have to reach out to them where they are. So be careful about preaching doctrine. Because doctrine will drive them away. I believed that at first. Thank you, God, for opening my eyes to the reality that's not true. Never took another class from that professor. Um, actually, I didn't take a class. He told me that on the side. Um, it's just sad what goes on in the name of Christianity. That's compromise. And I believe it's one of the reasons why the church in America, quote, has grown, but has it really? It is weaker now than it's ever been. And it's so, so sad. I believe compromise is the culprit. We have been called to what? A holy living, right? We are to be a holy people. And to live godly lives results in what? Persecution. Remember what uh, Paul told Timothy? 
to those who live godly life, you will face persecution. If you want to cover, if you want to avoid persecution, compromise. And I will say this: that when holy living is neglected, the church is in trouble because it falls away from what it has been called to do. And that's why Jesus Christ wants to bring judgment. So whenever the church compromises with the culture, it invokes the condemnation of Jesus Christ. Do not compromise. So what's the solution? Verse 16 and 17, the only solution to compromise is to repent. That's a given. To repent. The church was guilty of unjustified tolerance of, uh, of all these compromisers. And he gives them this urgent command. Jesus does this. Repent. Turn away. Turn from this compromise. This repentance is an acknowledgement that they have sinned by tolerating this and that they will turn against them. One pastor said, basically Jesus is saying, recognize and confess that you are doing no more a favor by you're doing no one a favor by overlooking and allowing such sin in your midst. Confronting the compromisers may be uncomfortable for you, even painful, but not nearly as painful as the judgment they will suffer if they remain in their sin. I agree with that, Pastor. We need to confront it. And so repentance means that we turn from it, and it also, it also means that if they refuse to repent, they must be removed. If we allow compromisers to remain, what happens? It begins to spread, right? It's like uh, uh, the leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so Jesus wants them to remove them. Being tolerant of these two groups makes the church guilty of compromise, even if they don't totally follow it. And what happens if you fail to repent, uh, uh, repent according to this passage? Jesus will judge. He will judge. Because he hates compromise. What happened to Balaam will happen to the church that does not deal with compromise. So as a church, we cannot tolerate compromise. And for us, in our own personal lives, we cannot tolerate compromise. Jesus hates it. And note the seriousness of the sin. What does Jesus say? I'm coming to you quickly, and I will what? Make war against them. Think about those words. The king of kings will come and make war. Can you imagine warring against the sovereign most high God? That's a frightful thought. That's serious. If you don't repent, I will come and I will make war against those who compromise. These are words of judgment. And this, these words, I believe, indicate that these compromisers did not repent. And thus, lack of repentance, I believe, shows lack of faith. They're probably unbelievers. Their continual licentiousness, their moral compromise argues against the claim that they follow Jesus Christ. Because a true follower of Christ will not continue on in sin. A true follower of Jesus Christ will repent. Right? Remember, when we trust in Jesus Christ, think theologically just for a second here. When we trust in Jesus Christ, what happens? The Holy Spirit enters in. What is one of the things the Holy Spirit does? According to John 16, He will come and He will convict of sin. Right? That's what, that's what we're told. So if the Holy Spirit comes in and His purpose is to convict us of sin, but we live comfortably without repentance and sin, what does that mean? Well, it means one of two things. 
either the Holy Spirit is failing at his role, or we're not truly saved. Right? If you can be comfortable in sin, don't think that you know Jesus Christ, because you don't. The Holy Spirit comes in to convict of sin. And if we refuse to repent, if we, ref we refuse to turn from sin, how can you tell me that the Holy Spirit is dwelling? He tells us, He, he comes to convict the world of sin. That's his, one of His roles. So if He's not convicting of sin, maybe it's because He's not there, because I don't believe the Holy Spirit can fail. So repentance is critical to this. And so their continual compromise, their continual licentiousness claims, uh, to me, shows that they don't know Jesus Christ. But that's for those who are compromised. But those who are faithful in the church were not off the hook. They are to repent of their tolerance of that kind of evil, the tolerance of these people. If repentance is ignored, then Jesus is going to bring severe discipline upon them. Think about it. And I've seen this happen before, and it's very frustrating. When a person in the church is put under church discipline because they refuse to repent, what is the church to do? Treat them as an unbeliever. They're, they're out there. So what happens when people in the church go and have lunch with them and continue to talk with them and befriend them? What, what is that? Is that not compromise? Because now they're saying, that's okay. We still love you anyway, and you, we're going to be your friends. No, the whole purpose of church discipline is what? That they would repent and come back. And so when people go behind the church discipline and meet with these people, they're just welcoming them in their sin. And that's dangerous. And I say that because I've seen it happen on several occasions. I was involved in some of that on several occasions. And it's frustrating. It's so frustrating. All of that is compromise. And if repentance is ignored, like I said, then Jesus will discipline. Now, some argue that, um, uh, you know, we are to show love. And I agree, we are to show love. But as I said before, love does not mean we accept sin. Love does not mean we accept compromise. I say that because that's one of the biggest uh, excuses, one of the biggest arguments they have. Love, love, love. My question to them is, if that's the case, then why is Jesus coming with, to exhort to discipline and judge? Does he not love? So don't fall for that whole, we got to love. The greatest thing you can, the greatest love that you could show is to discipline them so that they repent. And so we have to understand that purity many times comes at a price. It may come, that, it may come at the price, uh, at the cost of losing friends. It may come at the cost of losing family members who will not want to talk to you anymore. We have to be willing to pay that price for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. Simple compromise has to be confronted even though it's painful. So when there's, there's compromise, we must turn from the compromise. And when we do, please understand, it does honor God. It does honor God. Now, I'm not showing that we don't show love. We do show love. But I'm arguing that we must show love, but not at the expense of compromise. Right? That's important. It's never right for the sake of love to allow sin to spread in the church. It's never right for the sake of love to allow a person to continue to live in sin thinking that he's okay. It's never right. It's ne that's not true love. Then notice what he says in verse 17, for those who do repent and for those who do come against the compromises. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give uh, some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. He rewards those who overcome compromise. This is a great promise, right? Now we have seen this phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've seen it in the previous letters. It, it, it basically emphatic. It emphasizes the vital importance of what Jesus has said and how critical it is that people take heed to what he says. And like the other letters, this letter is addressed to the overcomers. And overcomers are the true believers, because all true believers are overcomers. By the way, this is where Nike gets their name. The word overcomer means victorious. It's the Greek word nakao, Nike. So that's where they get their name. They, they stole it from Scripture. No, I'm, not, I'm kidding. They, they didn't steal it. I'm just kidding. But I want you to see there are three rewards or three promises that Jesus gives to the true believer. First, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna. Right? When you think of manna, what do you think of? The bread, that, the food that God gave the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness, right? Came down from heaven. And you can read, uh, you can, uh, read about it in, in, uh, in the book of Exodus. And in, actually in Exodus, uh, Exodus chapter 16, verses 32 through 34, they were commanded to preserve a pot of manna there in the Ark of the Covenant. It was always to be there to remind them of God's faithfulness in providing food for them for 40 years, every day, without fail. Right? That was the manna. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the hidden manna refers to Jesus Christ as the true manna, the bread of life that's come down from heaven. Right? He who nourishes us with spiritual food that the world does not understand. You could read about it in John chapter 6 in the bread of life discourse. I am the bread of life, he says. Right? Chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, verses 31 through 51. And so the point here is that he's the hidden, the, the hidden manna. So he's making the state, that statement that Christians do not need the food of pagan festivals because we have a far better food. We don't need what this world offers. We have the best already. So we don't have to compromise to try to, quote, enjoy life with this world. We already have the very best. You can't get better than the hidden manna, which is the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. So we don't have to compromise. And so we don't need the satisfaction of the stuff of this world. We don't need the satisfaction of the claims of this world. Because we have a far better satisfaction. His name is Jesus Christ. And isn't it amazing how easy it is for us to get so caught up with the stuff of this world. I need this and I need that. No, you don't. You don't need those things because Christ is enough. Is he not? But we see so many getting caught up with all of this stuff. And we need more, and we need more, and I want to do this, and I got to do this, and I have this, and I need this, and I want this. But one thing I never hear, I want this, I want this, I need this, I have to have this, but I never hear people say, I want more of Jesus, I want more of Jesus, I need Jesus, I want more of Jesus. It's easy to say, I want that big screen TV. It's easy to say, I want a new car. I want a new truck. I need better clothes. I want more clothes. I need another computer. I need a better phone. I need, I need, I need. But I never hear people say, I need Jesus Christ, and I need him more. I need him more. I need more of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? 
He's our satisfaction and delight. But we're trying to find our satisfaction and delight in the stuff of this world. And that's why there's so much frustration. God never created you and me to find satisfaction in this world. Never. How did he create us in Genesis chapter 1? Chapter 2, both. He created us in his image. Right? He created us in his image. Right? So if we find joy because we're made in his image, where do we find it? Right, in him. Not in the stuff of this world. Satan's biggest lie is to compromise and find delight in this world, and that's why we're frustrated. What I love about uh, Jesus when he, uh, after the baptism, God spoke when he came out of the water. Remember what God said? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So Almighty God finds his pleasure and delight in who? His son. Where do we find it? Yeah, in a 15-inch screen TV, in a new car. Think about it, how much we compromise and we don't even realize it. He is the bread of life. He is the source of our pleasure. He is the source of our joy. He is. Not the stuff of this world. Let's not compromise with this world. It just will not satisfy. Our delight is in Christ, who is the true bread of life. And so for those who conquer, we have a feast. It'll be a forever feast with Jesus Christ. The second reward, or promise, if you will, I will give him a white stone. A white stone was commonly associated with the vote of acquittal in, in a court of law, or a favorable vote. Conversely, then, a black stone would say guilt. Right? But a white stone had also a reference to what they call a tessera, T-E-S-S-E-R-A. It was a Roman custom to award the victors in athletic games with a white stone, and their name would be inscribed on it. And then after all of that was done, there would be this uh, special awards banquet, and you can only get in if you have that stone. And so you have this white stone that was given to you, you go to the banquet, they let you in, and you can enjoy the feast. We overcome. He gives us that stone. What feast do we enter? Yeah. And without this stone, we don't get in. And he makes the promise. The one who overcomes, I will give him or her a white stone. So the promise of Jesus is that the overcomers have entrance into the eternal feast of heaven. And that's why we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. It says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a stunning promise. That's an awesome promise. Blessed are those who are invited, who have this white stone, so that we go in and we enjoy an eternal feast. And you realize that when you get to this feast in heaven, it only gets better and better every moment you're there. You know, you go to a feast today, and it eventually ends, and then you have to put everything away and wait for another feast. In heaven, it never ends. Because in heaven, the feast is Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is infinite. So how long is it going to take for us to enjoy that feast? 
all eternity. And it only gets better and better. And we're invited to that feast. He's given us the stone for overcomers. Why would we want to overcome? Or why would we want to compromise with the stuff of this world when this is what we have? And that's why Jesus hates compromise. And we should too. We should too. And the third promise or reward from Jesus is a new name on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. In the ancient world, to know someone's name, especially that of God, meant to enter into a very intimate and very personal relationship with that person. You begin to share that person's character when you're given that name. And the fact that this is a new name, notice it's a new name, means that this is going to be a new status. So we have a new status. And so a new name is given to each individual believer, which symbolizes the new status that we enter into. And I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, we are a new creation. We've been recreated, brand new. And so we receive this new name that is suitable to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So the point being is that we have this name that God himself gives us, which means that we have this intimate relationship, very personal relationship with God. And it will identify us with Christ as we enter into glory. What a promise. It's going to reflect the new identity that we have. It'll indicate that we are intimate children of the Almighty God. It makes us suitable for the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, this new name. And no one knows what this new name is, as, as, as we read in this text, but we know we will receive it, and we will know those names when we actually do receive it. So we don't know what it is. So don't ask what it is. We don't know. My, name, my new name will not be your new name. But we will have a new name. And what this brings out is the depth of intimacy that each of us will personally enjoy with Jesus Christ when we are there. That excites me. To finally know him that deeply, that intimately, forever, is exciting. And so the point of all of this is that we have a great reward awaiting us in the future. Yes, there, uh, there are benefits now. We have close intimacy. We can have intimate fellowship, close intimate fellowship with Christ now. But oh, what it will be like when we are there. And so, the, and he says all of this is hidden. And the fact that it is hidden means that it is kept safe. It's secure. This is something that will happen. Not may happen. It will happen. It is secure. Oh, how we should rejoice in this assurance, especially when we look out into this world and see the mess that it's in. What assurance we have. If this doesn't give you joy, then you need to search your heart. We should be excited. We should be looking forward to this. In fact, we should be so looking forward to this that it should impact our lives now. What made the Puritans the way they were, and what made Jonathan Edwards the way he was, is that they constantly focused on this promise, this eternity. Jonathan Edwards wrote that every morning he'd wake up, and the first thing he'd be thinking about is eternal glory. See, our problems, if we get caught up with everything else, our minds are focused on 
here and now. And it's okay to think of the here and now. We live now. But we need to focus more on our eternity. What's awaiting us? And let that impact the way you live now. That's what made a difference with the Puritans. See, too often, many Christians live as if this is their eternity. This is where they're going to spend eternity. i got to gain everything I can now because this is what my life is all about now. This is not your eternity. This is not even a blink in the light of eternity. We need to focus more on eternity. We need to focus on the fact that we have an identity with God reflected in that new name. And it transcends. What I love about this is that it transcends all of our shame, our disappointments, our regrets, our pains here. Transcends it all. We have this very personal intimacy with Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter stated in 1 Peter 1.4. He stated, an inheritance which is imperishable. Think about that. Imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. That's ours right now. Not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. That's a promise that is true of us right now. Why would we not want to think about it? I've talked with people who inherited money from dying grandparents. And they won't get it until a certain age. You know what they talk about? I can't wait, man, when I get, get that. And they're always thinking about what they're going to do with the money they get. Why is it that we don't think more about this eternity? Because this is ours. It's, it's, a, it's reserved. It's for us in heaven. This is what we should be thinking about. Not, man, I can't wait till I get that money. Oh, I can't wait till I get that TV. Oh, I can't wait that. No, I can't wait to get to heaven. You can keep this horror. You can keep this mess. I can't wait to get there. That's, that's what he wants us to do. I want to read a quote from G. Campbell Morgan, and we'll end with this talking about compromise, because compromise is so dangerous. He says, There is a toleration which is treachery. There is a peace which issues in paralysis. There are hours when the church must say no to those who ask communion with her. Such standing aloof may produce ostracism and persecution, but it will maintain power and influence. If the church of God in the cities of today were aloof from the maxims of this age, in other words, if the church of God stayed away from compromise, separated from the materialistic philosophies of the schools, bearing witness alone to the all-sufficiency of Christ and the perfection of his salvation, it would be to her that people would look in the hour of their heartbreak and sorrow and national need. The reason why people do not look to the church today is that she has destroyed her own influence by compromise. He's right. He's right. They don't look to us because we've compromised. But they would look to us if we could live in the power of Jesus Christ by not compromising. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow to you in overwhelming uh, joy at the fact that we have this promise. But God, we live in this world filled with evil and wickedness. And we, feel, uh, we live in this world that desires for us to compromise. And where compromise is difficult, it's hard. And so we ask that you keep our hearts pure. Help us to see compromise maybe even in our own lives and help us to turn. 
And God, I would ask that by your grace, you would help us not only to turn from compromise, but Lord, that you would help us to focus more on you and the promise that you've made about our eternal future. Overwhelm us with your presence. Draw us close to you. Lord, we thank you for that hidden manna. We thank you for the new name. We thank you for that white stone. We thank you that we have this eternal inheritance that will never perish. God, may we live in light of that rather than compromising with this world. And God, we pray in this next hour as we go to the service and we participate together as brothers and sisters in the worship of you. Fill our hearts with joy. Overwhelm us with your presence. Excite us as we sing and as we pray, as we hear your word preached. We pray for our, our dear pastor, God. Give him the strength, strengthen his voice, that he would speak only that which is true, empowered by your spirit. Oh, that we would be overwhelmed once again by your glory. We ask these things, God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.